0: that in putting together this book, we did not rank the entries. This wasn't merely a matter of self-interest, though we admit that the thought of spending hours fighting with critics about whether chopped liver was treated dismissively struck us as too close to a dystopian Seinfeld episode for comfort.
1: Hi, and welcome to The Big Schmear, the podcast celebrating Jewish food, culture, and history. I'm your host, Beth Schenker. I'm so glad you're joining me for this episode, The 100 Most Jewish Foods. It's based on the book by the same title. The book is connected with Tablet, not your mobile reading computer device, but the very Jewish, very hip online magazine by the same name. But more about that a little later. When I saw this book come out last year, I knew I had to take a look at it for myself, but also let all of you know about it. It's just a fabulous book. And when I started to think about how I would get this information out to you on my podcast, I knew that the person I really needed to speak with would be Alana Newhouse. She's the book's editor and also the editor-in-chief of Tablet magazine. So I'm super excited that Alana was available to be my guest. Hi, Alana, and welcome to The Big Schmear. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so glad that uh, we're able to connect and connect about something as fun as this book. There's so much that I want to talk to you about the book, but I think maybe the best place to start is to ask you how this book came to be, where the inspiration came from.
0: So, Tablet Magazine, which is an online magazine that started a little more than 10 years ago, consistently would publish what we called canons or lists of the Jewish cultural inheritance. So 100 Great Jewish Songs, 100 Most Jewish Films, 101 Great Jewish Books. And after a while, we would publish these every couple of years. When we were thinking about what the next one should be, it occurred to me that if what we were trying to do was offer readers an understanding of the Jewish inheritance, we could not overlook the enormous goldmine that was our culinary history. So the idea here started as an online feature, which is still up and is still great to peruse. The book has a lot more in it, but the feature began on the website as the 100 Most Jewish Foods uh, Project. And after that, we have a line of books with Artisan, and they asked for us to make, this, make that project into a book and add one major thing that was not, that's not on the website, uh, which is recipes.
1: Right, which is always a fun addition to any book that's talking about Jewish food. You've got to have some recipes. So let me ask you this. Of course, great idea. And I am familiar with tablets, other 100 lists, which are, I found always fascinating and educational, just great on so many levels. But on this, ML, and maybe this happened at other of your other lists, too. I could just see people saying, but why didn't you include X? Uh How could you have left off that? And so I'm guessing you got a lot of that. I did
0: and I you know, and you're right that there was more more fighting from people I would say don't necessarily consider themselves experts, <laughs> um, which made the conversation richer and for me more exciting. and I think that part of that is because unfortunately, and I think incorrectly, people have been given the impression that in order to Part in a conversation about, let's say, the best Jewish books or what should be considered an important Jewish film, that they need some area of academic expertise or scholarly research or just canonical knowledge. And it's not true. I think that, you know, I don't want to say that understanding a field is not important. It absolutely is. And expertise is important but also understanding the way that people embrace things in their lived lives is a value too. And so I think it's not a surprise that food comes across as something that people feel like because they've had a direct experience in it, they feel more comfortable maybe throwing their hat in the ring in a fight about it. I I wish that they would feel that same confidence about everything.
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, I totally get that. It's, it's personal for people. It's really their connection to their own Jewish identity in this case. And um, yeah, they speak from experience. That's, I think that says a a lot about it. One of the things, because this is audio and not video, is I, I wanted to just make a comment about the table of contents and the way the table of contents looks, which is really fun for me because it's it's actually images of food more than it is about words about food that's listed in the book, and I just love that. I feel like it's a clever way to get inside right away and say, oh, I, I like that photo, I like that image of X, so I'm going to see what, what's in here about that. I think it's great.
0: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. The idea behind the way that we organize the book or, and actually even the online project, it actually comes from something from a philosophical underpinning of the whole idea, which was once you decide to put together a list, the next question is, is how do you organize it? Is the list going to be prioritized in some way? Are you saying these are the hundred most Jewish foods, one to 100 with one being the most Jewish and Mm. 100 being the least Jewish? And that felt ridiculous.
1: Right.
0: In part because part of the culinary inheritance of the Jews is that Jews lived in so many different places around the globe and because of dietary restrictions, they created unique mashups, effectively, between Jewish tradition and local cuisine, local agriculture. But what that means is is that even though, so so for right now in America, the majority of Jews and certainly the majority of uh, the impression of Jewish culture is uh, dominated by Ashkenazic Jewry, uh, because the majority of American Jews who immigrated here in the last century were from Poland, Eastern Europe, Russia. So yeah, most of us know what chicken soup is and its meaning, and we know what bagels are. But does that mean that they're more important than something like Adafina, which was a stew made by Jews in the Iberian Peninsula after the Inquisition, in which they risked their lives? to make something that kept them connected to their Jewishness. It seems ridiculous to say that one has more importance than the other just because one is familiar.
1: Right, right.
0: So rather than do that, we just decided to list it all alphabetically. And then the pictures
1: came about after that. Which is great. I feel like it's the most, fair is not a very good word, but it's mm-hmm. the most egalitarian way to put all that information out there. So I'm wondering if there were discussions, perhaps heated discussions about things not being included or, and I'd, I wonder if you have any behind the scenes stories you might be able to share that just points to how difficult it probably was in making those final selections between this kind of food and that kind of food or this kind of potato latka versus the kind that's made in this area of the world.
0: Yeah, we had, I mean, innumerable fights um, (laughs) and they were very, very generative and very interesting. And I think that we made mostly good calls and we made a, a couple of, I think we made a couple of mistakes in hindsight, but I'll give you an example. I think that everybody came to the list with their own investments and their own sensibilities and their own ideas about where they see the Jewish culinary past and where they hope that its future is. So for example, someone like my friend David Sachs who's written a book about the Jewish delis. David Sachs gave me a list of Jewish deli foods that he said needed to be on the master list. And there were like thirteen or fourteen I mean, <laughs> he wanted like a quarter of the list to be from deli, which you know, we have thousands of years of history. Right. Much you of can't it stretching back before the deli. Yeah. Um, and he was horrified when I told him that in fact He was only going to get one entry, and he was going to have to talk about Delhi as an idea and list everything, pastrami, corned beef, everything was going to go under that rubric. And the same thing went for people who felt deeply connected to the cuisines of Middle Eastern Jews, or the cuisines of Ashkenazic Jewry, or the cuisines of moments in historical eras. Um, Everybody came to it with their own arguments. And I think that actually, in some senses, the fun of the list for putting for us putting it together was in having those discussions. I think the thing that, if you asked me to say one thing that I think we got wrong, I think it's um, the whole universe of savory pastries from Sephardic culinary history that generally fall under the name Burekas, but mm-hmm. they are actually multiple different kinds of pastries and I think that the interesting thing here is is that that's my family's culinary history, and I think that I we made that mistake in part because I was I was trying to overcorrect for my own investments.
1: Yeah, um, I could see how that would happen. I
0: didn't I didn't want to put my finger on the scales for my own family's culinary history, and I think ultimately it was a mistake.
1: Well, hopefully we can we can remedy that by talking about that topic at some other future time, right? And so you mentioned another big portion of this book, which is the contributors. I mean, the contributors are amazing experts in so many areas of Jewish food. And I I wonder also, how did you decide on your list of contributors? Well,
0: so the way that it happened was it was very... A little helter-skelter and kind of, I guess if you want to be, if we wanted to be generous to our process, we would call it organic. <laughs> if you wanted to probably be more accurate, call it a little bit chaotic. But it was, what happened was, is once we realized that we wanted to do this list, the person who really shepherded it along with us is a woman named Gabriella Gershenson. who's a terrific, really brilliant food editor and writer who worked for Savore and Rachel Ray. And What we started to do was we started to reach out to people, historians, food writers, food personalities, and effectively what we did was we said, We're putting together this list. Send us all of your thoughts, however broad or narrow. Mm. And some people wrote back and said, What a great idea. Some people wrote back and said, What a nightmare. Some people wrote back and said, oh, that's a great idea. Also, brisket has to be on the list and I have to write it. <laughs> um, so, so, so everyone's reaction really was different. And some people, obviously, some of the food writers, historians with really deep knowledge, started us off by giving us the broad contours of about how we should probably think about this if we were going to do it in a smart way. So right off the top... People said, you know, there's a whole history of medieval Jewish cuisine that you really don't want to miss out on, and here's this historian of it who you really should look into. Or someone said, uh, you know, Gail Simmons actually feels really deeply about her own experience Jewishly uh, in the house and the universe that she grew up in, and I bet you she would have something to say about something. And it which turned out to be true. So people started to give us tips and send us off in different directions, both conceptually and also with specific matches. And with that, we just started matching people with specific entries. And sometimes we did it more surgically. So like, for example, I woke up one night in the middle of the night and I said to myself, oh my gosh, I, we actually have to try to get Eric repaired to you can filter fish. Because repairs, you know, the god of fish. <laughs> and so the idea that he actually might say something about the iconic Jewish fish dish seemed right. So we thought, well, let's reach out and see if he's ever had it, and if he has any thoughts about it. And it turned out, of course, that he had. But other things happened. You know, sometimes we had the thought and we came up with it. But other times it was just based on talking to people and, you know, getting ideas from them.
1: Boy, it just sounds like such an amazing project. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall for some of those conversations because... It was amazing. Yeah, I can just think of every kind of level of oh, intrigue and fighting and new information that you would find. It Just really exciting on so many levels. It's such a cool thing. Tell me how long the process took between the decision to do this project, and then the final product of the published book.
0: So, a little confusing uh, to think of it that way, because the project started, it probably took us about a year, a little over a year, to get the project up on the website. But it took very, it was a very, very short amount of time from the website to the book. In part because the contours of the project were set once we actually had the website up. Sure. In like fact, our publisher, it was once our publisher saw the website that they decided they wanted it as a book. So it wasn't planned as a book. Oh, um, it. it. was planned as, as an online project that then grew into a book. So, you know, I don't know. I, it's interesting. I'd probably have to go back. I, I think my first meeting with Gabby uh, was probably three years ago. Maybe two and a half, but I think it was a while ago, and we worked on it for, you know, we had it on simmer,
1: uh, letting it
0: reach its natural boil, which took a little while, and then once we put it online, it was a pretty swift trip to the to publication from
1: there. Yeah, all your homework was done, and I mean, a lot lot, of it. Yeah, yeah. a lot of it. So, for those people who haven't seen the book, the other thing I, I want to say about it is that. The food entries are really fun and informative and, and sometimes a bit edgy. And I thought I would ask Alana to read one of her entries. She has a couple. I thought I'd have her read her entry on matzah because I think it talks a little bit about just what she's saying about the how they thought through this process of the book and deciding which foods to talk about and, and which not. So I'll give Alana, a moment to find that at page 193. and Yep, I've got it. Perfect. Could you read that for us? Sure, I'd
0: be happy to. Perceptive readers will note that in putting together this book, we did not rank the entries. This wasn't merely a matter of self-interest, though we admit that the thought of spending hours fighting with critics about whether chopped liver was treated dismissively struck us as too close to a dystopian Seinfeld episode for comfort. But the truer reason here is that these foods represent the experiences of different people, places, and times in Jewish history. The majesty, allure, joy, and terror of this story reside in its diversity and complexity. And yet, it is not outlandish to argue that only one food was present at the creation of the Jewish people, and it has miraculously managed to sustain that bond over millennia. That food is matzah, our unleavened bread of affliction and redemption. This is the only entry in this book that is receiving a numerical value, because on a list of foods judged for their Jewish significance, none is more important. It might not be anybody's favorite dish, it's certainly not the most delicious, but it's arguably the only food that we all somehow eat, no matter where we live or where our family came from. The old saying, two Jews, three synagogues, accurately captures our age-old love of disputation and drawing distinctions, which can be fruitful and necessary, but at times, absurdly destructive. We might also do well to occasionally remember the gifts and pleasures that have come for thousands of years from staying committed to what we share in common.
1: Thank you. I just think that really sums up the importance of the book and certainly the importance of this entry. And so here's a question for you. We don't have a recipe for matzah in the book, and there are also other entries that don't have recipes. And so what was the thinking about which to put recipes, include recipes, and which were not? Was there some special policy that you put in place for that? Just curious. Well...
0: Primarily, every food that could realistically be cooked with some ease does have a recipe in the book. So the vast majority of people do not make their own matzah, even if, even in communities that are quite observant. Um, in part because you know it's science; it's not just a pain and kind of hard to make, but also there really isn't that much of an advantage to making it at home, unlike a lot of other foods uh, where they're homemade. Equivalent is so much better than anything you can buy in the store. Matzah is just—it's not a—it's not a food that most people make. And that the same thing obviously goes for sweet and low or <laughs> bazooka gum.
1: Right. Um, I guess conceivably people could make their
0: own bazooka gum at home or try to make their own Stelladoro cookie. But for the most part, food stuffs like that—things that are uh, generally used by people via the way that they buy it, we did not include recipes for. Everything else, we did include a recipe
1: for. With great so, instruction, too, I might add.
0: Yeah, it's, for us, that was, it was very, very important.
1: And then I guess the one comment I would make for me personally about reading the book was that I love that some of those foods that you included entries for just immediately brought me back to my own childhood and... My, like what? Um, griminous, which I haven't had for uh-huh. decades. And I would never make that. I mean, they're just, my husband and my daughter are pescatarians and they would just, they wouldn't be in, as excited about sharing that as, <laughs> with me as I would love to have it. And so it's recipes like that that could disappear, but thankfully not, because there's this book so um, I just think there's so, on so many levels, it's it's just a great um, resource, too, to have. Thank you so
0: much. Oh. I mean, that's really what we, that's what we tried to do. And what, the fun thing for me is that I keep hearing from people who got the book, the book reminded them of something that they used to eat in their childhood, and then they began to make it again, a lot of times, with their kids. And what's fun about that is, is that, I think that the people in our lives may be more open to learning about things that were part of our own history than we even may give them credit for. Um, I mean in your case if everyone's a pescatarian then they may may not be the top
1: food right to try right but, but there are other things um, in there for but sure But I think but there's but there's other
0: stuff in here too that can be tried. I mean you can make your own homemade gefilte
1: fish. Absolutely. And everybody eats that for sure. So this is a little like asking you, so who's your favorite child? Um, uh-huh. But do you have a favorite entry or entries that might might bring up a story for you that you could share with us as to why that particular entry would, that stands out for you personally?
0: Yeah, I think the entry that's the, that's the one I feel most magnetized to still is that entry for Adafina which is that the stew that was made by Spanish and Portuguese Jews. And it's a stew that was made by them uh, in the wake of the Inquisition when the authorities would warn or use neighbors and uh, servants to try to sniff out who were still uh, Judaizers, um, which Jews were holding on to Jewish tradition. Um, in this case, not using salt pork and uh Potentially not cooking on the Sabbath. And so this is a stew that people made that allowed them to hide their continued commitment to their Jewishness to some extent. And when I read about it, you know, you can read about these experiences historically, but when you actually encounter a detail like that, it brings home the idea that feels so central to this whole project that food is not a frippery it's not simply this fun kind of unserious part of our tradition it's actually a a platform on which we've we've expressed our jewishness and our jewish identity we've passed it on to others it's in some, for some people. It is the platform where Jewishness becomes the most rich and enjoyable, and pleasurable. And in that sense, I think it needs to be taken incredibly seriously. So, for me, that's the entry that has a lot of has a lot more depth than people might give it credit for if they just scanned.
1: I love the way you talked about that. That's just it's beautiful and heartfelt and and says how connected you are and were to this project, which is wonderful. I forgot to ask you if there is a recipe from the book that we could actually post on the website. Yeah, of course. Just pick whichever one you want. Great. So for all of you curious about recipes in this book, Alana has generously offered to share a recipe from the book with all of you, which will be on my website as usually the case um, with the next episode. So please be on the lookout for that. And lastly, for those not familiar with Tablet Magazine, I wonder if you could give us the elevator pitch. One of the reasons I think that my listeners will really want to know about this publication is because there are, um, there's, there's just, tons of articles about Jewish food and recipes that are included in the magazine on a regular basis. And there's also much more than that. So maybe you could just say briefly um, a little bit about Tablet Magazine and where people can find that.
0: Sure. So uh, we can be found online at tabletmag.com and the magazine is an outlet that covers Jewish Life and all of its iterations in contemporary society, it's a magazine that's based in America, so the focus is on North American Jewish life, but we, we use that as an anchor from which to engage with and explore the Jewishness around the world. Sometimes that takes the form of exploring politics. Sometimes it's exploring trends in religion or religious expression, So, And sometimes it's about culture or arts, and sometimes it's about what might be considered uh, lifestyle or societal expressions like food, holidays. And sometimes it's about finding the ways in which all of those things intersect. So just this week, we published a piece about um, so-called Sabbath restaurants in Israel, which are restaurants that are open on the Sabbath and they allow you to pay before or after. So you can go in and actually have a kind of restaurant experience on the Sabbath in Jerusalem without having to pay. And sort of the the piece gets into the experience of people who run these and the ways that they've run into um, problems with the rabbinate um, and how that the thorniness politically for them. It's a very interesting piece that also engages with the idea of food and how people want to experience food, but it's also a piece about community. And because we aren't aligned with any particular corner of the Jewish established landscape, but rather much more interested in people and how they themselves want to or are expressing their identity, a lot of, it's not a surprise that from very early on, food became a big area of interest and of coverage for us. So Mimi Sheridan and Joan Nathan were two of our first writers. Joan still does a regular monthly video series for us, which is terrific and super unexpected and fun and engaging and people, is a big fan base for it. But we also have writers from around the world sending us stories about the ways in which Jewish food is being... The ways in which Jewish food is now becoming an adventure. And it's an adventure that a lot of people are uh, undertaking in ways that I find not just fun and unexpected, but also deeply meaningful. So that's how
1: we cover it in general. It's a great magazine. and. And an intelligent magazine. So I I encourage people to check it out. I also encourage people to get a copy of the 100 Most Jewish Foods. And sadly, I will say, uh, Alana, thank you so much. Uh, I know it's time to go. I could talk to you for a long time about not just Jewish food. And I I just really appreciate you joining me today to to talk about this book project. It's been great. Thank you so much for having me.
0: This is really a delight.
1: It's been fun, for sure. Thank you for listening to The Big Schmeer. Our recording engineer is Max Fabian from Tightrope Recording in Chicago. My mix engineer is Steve Robinson. The Big Schmeer theme music is performed by Cavatino Duo from their CD entitled Sephardic Journey on the CD record label. If you like The Big Schmeer, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. If you have comments or questions, I'd love to hear from you please email me at beth at the big And be sure to check out my website, thebigshmeer.com, to find recipes shared by my guests. I'm Beth Schenker, the host of The Big Schmear. Thank you for listening, and happy eating.